Well, greetings to you on this soft Sabbath day. We had the opportunity when my father was in Ireland for three years to visit he and many of our brethren in Ireland and the United Kingdom. And what a beautiful morning this is. Went for a walk as a family and came back and had a nice, warm, hot cup of tea with some cream and sugar in it and reminisced a little bit about past Feast of Tabernacles in the United Kingdom and in Ireland. Happy Sabbath to all of you. Uh, Thank you, Mr. King, for the special music. It's amazing how the sound of that horn not only fills the room, but fills you. You and feel it on the inside. It's neat. Brethren, we're very close, aren't we, to the Feast of Tabernacles. Atonement, just a day, well... (laughs) It begins less than two days from now. Tomorrow evening as the sun sets, we'll be here. And then we will be headed to our various and sundry feast sites around the country and around the world to celebrate an aspect of God's truth that very few people understand today. An aspect of God's plan that is demonstrated through His truth, this festival the Feast of Tabernacles, the last great day, and actually one of my favorite holy days is Monday, the Day of Atonement. When you think about the meaning of that incredible day, when it is finally fulfilled, and the king, the present king of this world is put away. His demons no longer can influence the world, and the true King of kings and Lord of lords can rightfully take his place as ruler of this earth and of the universe for eternity. An awesome time ahead and an awesome truth. Brethren, what does this truth mean to you? What does it mean to you? Do you love God's truth? How much do you love God's truth? What are you willing to do in order to hang on to God's truth? Why is loving the truth a necessary aspect of our character? Why is it completely necessary for God's first fruits? Brethren, what could happen if you do not love the truth? Years ago, there were hundreds of people in Charlotte on this day celebrating the Sabbath on the Day of Atonement. My wife and I, when we first got married, lived in the Birmingham, Alabama church area. And we had, at our peak, about 30 people in the global church of God. At one time in Birmingham, there were over 1,200 people in multiple congregations, multiple times a day, meeting every single Sabbath. And if you compiled all of those still holding to the truth from all of the groups in the Birmingham area, you might might have had 120 people, a tithe, a tenth of what there once was. Where have they gone? There's the song that was sung years ago, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long, long time ago. Do you love the truth, brethren? Do you love it enough to hold on to it? My purpose today is to review with you the importance of loving God's truth. And I want to share with you some ways to make sure that you're doing that and that you're growing in your love for the truth. Young people, 
this message is for you as well. You have an understanding of the truth. You have an understanding of the plan of God. You're going to the feast, as we just mentioned. And you know what it pictures, the thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints on this earth. Not ruling with a rod of iron that's going to clobber people, although there is an aspect of the rod of iron, but it's ruling with love, giving to this world and teaching them and showing them the way, the way. If you read the book of Acts, if you haven't done this before, maybe do this at some point. Go through the book of Acts with a highlighter. And every time you see the phrase, the way, used, underline it. And see how frequently it's used. See how the apostles referred to the truth, not as the ways. You know, you go by billboards in this part of the country, and they say, or a bumper sticker might say, it doesn't matter where you go, just go. It doesn't matter where you go to church, when you go to church, just make sure you go to church. Yet the apostles referred to the truth as the way, not the ways, the way. Young people, you know this, you understand this, your minds are being open to this. This message is for you as well. Because you have an enemy, too, who's going to try and keep you from loving the truth. Because he knows that if you don't love the truth, you're going to miss out on some things. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you turn there with me to begin this afternoon? Second Thessalonians 2. Give you some background. This sermon was a Bible study of mine that came about because some individuals and I were talking after services a while back. And the question was, how can somebody who knows God's truth let it go? How can somebody who knows God's truth, who has sacrificed for God's truth, who's given up for God's truth, who's seen the miracles happen and the healings happen for decades in some cases, how can they give it up? How can they let it go? I want to answer that question today, or at least begin to answer the question in the sermon today. And then we'll end up by talking about how we can use the Feast of Tabernacles in these fall holy days to help ensure that we grow in our love for the truth of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, an end-time prophecy here where Paul is inspired to write to the church at Thessalonica, the called-out ones there, and to admonish them to give them some information about end-time events that will come to pass, but also to encourage them. He is writing to the church. And in Greek, that word for church is ekklesia. It means called-out ones, chosen, special, separated individuals. That's what the word church means. It's a body of believers who are separated from society. You start reading in verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, this man of sin that's going to come on the scene later on, I just lost my place, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. This lawless one, when he comes on the scene, he's not going to be this soft little man who says, you need to do it this way. He's going to be a powerful individual. And how does he work? Let's continue. 
He works with all power, with signs, and with lying wonders. He is going to wield diabolical, deceptive power and influence, if possible, even the elect to follow him, to fall for what he's doing. He's going to use power to do that. In verse 10, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they, why, 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 why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Why does somebody believe a lie? About the truth, God sends strong delusion because they don't love the truth. That they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Matthew twenty four twelve. I won't turn there, says that the love of many will wax or will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold because lawlessness will abound. This mystery of lawlessness that Paul is talking about. Society in general that doesn't want anything to do with law. Believers who don't want the law. The mystery of lawlessness. The power of lawlessness. And people are willing to believe a lie. Powerful concepts here. Why do people give up the truth? At least apparently. And when they give it up, it's not forever, necessarily. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But why? Perhaps one reason is what Paul's talking about here, because they don't love the truth. So I ask you again, brethren, do you love the truth? Because you can see what could happen if you don't. Let's go, go to some more scriptures. Brethren, what is the truth? How can you know the truth? John chapter 18. Here in John chapter 18, Jesus Christ on the day of his crucifixion, is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate. And he's asked a barrage of questions, John chapter 18. We're going to break into verse 37 here. John 18, 37, Therefore Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? He's prodding Christ. What are you going to say? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We've got to be of the truth to hear his voice. Pilate's listening to this, and he stands back probably and says, I could see this in a snide way. We'll have to see. Jesus Christ will let us in on it one day, or perhaps Pilate will as we have the opportunity to work with him. But he asked the question, what is truth? You think about the society that Christ was working in, this Roman society which was built on the back of the Greek society, of logic, of understanding, of the search for truth through logical, rational thought. And Pilate articulates, what is truth? People are going to hear you if, if they, they follow the truth. What is truth? 
What is truth? What's the definition of truth? If you look back across the page to John 17, Christ himself defines what the truth is. In his prayer, after the Passover service, John 17, verse 17, he prays to the Father, sanctify them or set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. The Word of God is truth. This book that's in your lap or in front of you is truth. That's what truth is. The truth includes what? The answers to life's biggest questions, questions that have perplexed mankind for millennia. Questions like, how did the universe begin? How did I get here? What is the purpose for life? Is there even a purpose for life? What happens after you die? What happens after a non-believer dies? These types of questions. Will man destroy himself? These are aspects of the truth. The answers are the truth. And this word lets us know the answers to those questions. God's truth also includes understanding His plan and his expectations for us in this physical life. And I think you know and you understand these things. What do we do with the truth? How do we find the truth? What does 1 Thessalonians 5.21 say? I'm not going to turn there because this should be a memory scripture. And if you're taking notes, you can write it down. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul again tells the church, the called out ones in Thessalonica, he says, prove it, prove all things. And hold fast, hold tightly to that which is good. But you've got to prove it. How many people in the world today in religions, whatever religion, actually prove what they believe? How many just go along with it? Because that's what they've been taught. Young people who are listening to this, new individuals who are visiting, who hopefully will come back because you're welcome here. And hopefully you'll feel the love and the welcoming here. But you've got to prove it. Don't just believe us, as our presenters say. Don't believe what we write. You've got to go here. When you read the magazine articles, when you read the booklets, don't just read them. Pull the book out. Look up the scriptures. And then go beyond. Young people, you've got to know, number one, what you believe and why you believe it. But you've got to know why you don't believe something else. That's part of proving the truth. And understanding that this is the best explanation out there. There is no other better explanation to life's biggest questions. No other religion has it. They don't. But we do. But you need to prove that for yourself. Don't believe me. Look it up for yourself. Parents who are raising young people. We've got to raise our children to know the truth, to understand the truth, but to prove it for themselves, to know why they believe what they believe. And when they know why, they're going to be able to hold on to it because nothing else is going to make sense. There's not going to be clarity in anything else. They're going to see the problems with the other rationalizations, the holes in the arguments, but they've got to know why. Prove all things hold fast to that, that which is good. We've got to prove the truth. Brethren, the truth has power in it, doesn't it? 
There's power in the truth. Turn with me to John 8. While we're in John, let's go back a little bit earlier. The words again of Christ. What did Christ have to say about power in the truth? John chapter 8. We're going to break into a concept here, a thought. Let's go to verse 31. John 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Indeed. If you live in my word and what I'm saying and do what I say, you are my disciples. Verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth is a freeing thing if we live by it. Let me give you one example of the power of the truth. Uh, Mr. Ames isn't here for me to pick on. He writes articles from time to time on heaven and hell and the truth behind them, which makes Mr. Gary Amon's job incredibly interesting because people either call in and they say, thank you so much for this truth, or they call in and they call us names because they're angry that their godless relatives aren't burning in hell forever. We had a lady call in about four years ago after Mr. Armstrong wrote his article, or Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Ames, excuse me, after Mr. Ames wrote an article on who is burning in hell. Some of you may remember the picture. It's a, a hand coming out of flame. It's an awesome image. And she read this article, and she was extremely moved by it. And she called in and she asked the question, Would you please explain this to me? I think I want to be excited about this, but I don't want to misunderstand it. And Mr. Amon, who got the call, basically took five minutes and he explained the truth of heaven and hell. This lady made the observation. She said, you know, I have an adult son and he's a practicing homosexual. And my pastor and the people in my church congregation have told me that because of his lifestyle, he's going to burn in hell for eternity. And I'm going to get to go to heaven because I'm living a more righteous life. She said, I can't get excited about going to heaven. I don't want to be there if I know that my son, regardless of how he lives his life today, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is in an ever-burning hell, writhing in agony. How can I be joyful in heaven when he's going through that torment forever? I'm his mother. Of course, Mr. Amon explained it to her. He said, you know what? Your son's not going to burn in hell. When he dies, he's going to go to sleep. Because no one has ascended into heaven or hell save Jesus Christ. And in about a thousand years or so, he's going to be raised again into the flesh. God's going to open his mind for the first time in his life, and he's going to be able to be taught, and he's going to be willing to learn God's truth in the right way of life. The lady on the other end of the phone was silent for a little bit, and then she said, thank you. She said, you've done me more good in five minutes than 20 years of therapy.
Brethren, there's power in the truth. And the truth can set us free. When we have a loved one that dies and they don't know God's truth, guess what? Yes, it's hard. And yes, we do suffer. But what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4? You sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. Because we have hope. We know there's another opportunity. In fact, a first opportunity. The truth can set us free. There's power in the truth. Our ceremony, our burial ceremony, talks about what happens after life. And it talks about how worldly conjecture, worldly theories like evolution don't bring comfort in a time like this. You know, life randomly just happened, didn't it? And it just snuffs out. There are the religions that teach, okay, you've been good in this life, you're going to elevate. And you're going to become something else in the next life. And if you haven't been good, you're going to become a fly or a hippopotamus or something else. Brethren, almost a billion people believe this. Almost a billion people. There are other religions that teach if you will just kill a Jew or a Christian, if you're a man, you die and guess what? You go to heaven and you'll have 70 virgins. Loving God, kill my creation, and I'm going to reward you with polygamy? Brethren, what is the truth and how much does it mean to you? The truth will set us free if we know, if we understand, if we live by it. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. What did God, through one of the wisest men who ever lived, King Solomon, tell us about the truth? Proverbs 23 and verse 23. What are we told? By the truth. And do not sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding is what Mr. Bonjour was talking about. Go after it. Seek it. Hunger and thirst for it. Buy it. Buy it. And don't sell it. Now, we don't have to buy the truth with money, do we? In fact, thankfully, we have the opportunity because of your generous tithes and offerings and because of your love for the people in the world... We can give the truth. But how do we buy the truth? We buy it with our life, don't we? We buy it by changing my way of life and deciding to do it God's way. But God says, once you've got it, once you've got it in your fingertips, once you're holding on to it, once you've made it part of your life, don't ever sell it. Don't give it away. Don't let it go. Buy it and sell it not. That's what Christ was talking about with the Parables, parable of the pearl of great price. This man who finds a pearl and he sells everything he's got and he goes after it. Many of you have done that. You've given up, by worldly standards, many things. Salary, prestige, homes, boats, all kinds of things. Titles. For the truth, you've bought it. God says, don't sell it no matter what. What are you willing to give up for the truth? What should we be willing to give up for the truth? What should we be willing to do for it? Matthew 24. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 24, the words of Christ again. Thinking about the truth, knowing the truth, understanding the truth. Why should we be willing to hold on to the truth? Matthew 24, verse 11. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. We read about one in 2 Thessalonians, the major uh, deceiver. Verse 12, because, of, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he, or you could put she, who endures to the end will be saved. If we buy it and we sell it not, if we hang on there to the very end, what's the reward? Being saved. We heard about it on trumpets. The last trump. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Poof. Changing from the mortal to the immortal. Rising in the air to meet Christ. And then it's continued. It will be continued on Monday to hear some more of the story. And then to hear the rest of the story, you need to head off to where God places His name around the world. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Again, why do some people seemingly let the truth go? Why do they let it go? All kinds of reasons, because they don't love it. Why would somebody not love the truth? What, what, is, what is the issue? Mark chapter 4. Words of Christ again here, verse 17. Mark 4, uh, verse 16. These likewise are ones sown on stony grounds, the parable of the sower being explained. They hear the word immediately. They receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. And afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, difficult times come. For the word's sake, immediately they stumble. They get pressure because of what they believe, and they don't hold on. Why? Because there's no root in them. I want you to think about trees for a minute. We live in this part of the country in an area that's prone to hurricanes and tornadoes. And those who've lived in this area of the country have seen what I'm going to talk about. When a tornado goes through, provided it's not an F5 tornado and just takes everything down to the dirt, you see trees left over afterward, and you see trees tipped over. What's really interesting is there are different kinds of trees with different kinds of root systems. One of the trees that you often see standing after a tornado is a pine tree. Pine trees are an interesting tree. Now, you may not see all of the pine trees standing. You may just see the trunk. But pine trees are interesting from a standpoint of roots because a pine tree has a tap root that goes down deep, straight down. It's strong. It's solid. And when the wind blows hard, sometimes the wind will literally rip the top out of the pine tree from twisting it all around. But it can't get the pine tree out. And so you see this stump, this trunk of the tree stuck and immovable because of the root that it has. How deep does your root go? Is it surface-level roots? And when the wind blows, it's just going to tip you over. Or do you have a taproot that goes deep so that when the winds of doctrine blow, you're stuck, you're immovable, you're not going anywhere? Romans chapter 1. Back to the words of Paul here. God's inspiration through the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church at Rome, the saints in Rome. 
Romans chapter 1. Talking about individuals who chose to leave the truth, verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up, Romans 1, 24, He gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They had an image of the truth. But it wasn't the truth. They, they worshiped the creature, gospel about the creator, but not the creator himself. They gave up the truth for what? They exchanged it. They sold it for a lie. Could that happen to you, brethren? Young people, could that happen to you? Could you exchange the truth for a lie? Is that a reality? Could it happen? I think we all could probably agree, yes, it could happen to me. But there are things we can do to keep that from happening. Galatians chapter 3. One more scripture here before we change gears and, and talk about what we can do proactively. Galatians chapter 3. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul here to the church at Galatia in Asia Minor. Galatia chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul, again, he's writing to the brethren here. He's not writing to some strangers. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Who has bewitched you, he says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? But who has bewitched you that you would give it up and not obey the truth anymore? And bewitching happens. People believe lies. They get bewitched. Oh, you're going to be released from this terrible burden of the law. You're not going to have to obey that anymore. How would it be if Mr. Meredith got up here this afternoon and said, you all are released from the burden of having to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Don't go. We're canceling the feast. I believe people might not listen to him. Burden? It's not a burden, is it? You're released. You don't have to keep the commandments anymore. Adultery is... Okay. What? Stealing. You don't have to keep that commandment anymore. No. Why do we have, in many countries around the world, still relatively organized societies? They won't come out and tell you, but guess what? They keep different aspects of the law of God. It's illegal to steal. And if you steal, you break the law. That's, a ten. That's one of the ten, isn't it? It's a nice thing, though. Because, for the most part, people don't. It's illegal to do a number of different things. To kill. What does that mean? You can walk down the street in the daylight, and odds are you're not going to be killed. You're not going to be gunned down or knifed. And this is a burden. No! But people have been confused into believing that it is. 
bewitched to not obey the truth. I've known lots of people who've departed from the truth. Now, if one individual was in the truth for a long time and was bewitched, and he became a Jew, not a Messianic Jew, a Jew. He went from believing in Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ to believing that Christ was just a person. He wasn't even a prophet. He's waiting for Christ to come the first time. How does that happen? Bewitched to not know, to not understand. And this happens over and over again. A number of years ago, I was out with some brethren for dinner after a holy day. And we went to a restaurant in a mall, and next to us was another family that we'd known in the truth. It was after a holy day. A wife and daughter had been out shopping that day. They'd done, they'd done the town in their shopping. They had bags all around them. They used to know the truth, yet they were shopping on the holy day. Um, the husband, who had been a leader in the church, had gone back to seminary, and he was becoming a Baptist minister so that he could teach what? The Trinity. The rapture. That there is an ever-burning hell. That the Sabbath is Sunday. And Christmas and Easter glorify God. How does that happen, brethren? How can we prevent that from happening? I'd sat next to their family on holy days and talked with them. And a couple of years later, the whole world changed. Brethren, how can you remain in the truth? How can you continue to love the truth? If you don't love it, how can you begin to love it? If you do love it, how can you grow to love it even more? I'm going to ask you a few questions here. And I encourage you to meditate on these. You can write them down if you want, but think about them. Brethren, do you still love the truth? Do you still love it, those of you who've been around for a long time? Yes, you know it, but do you love it? There's a difference. Are you excited about coming to services on the Sabbath? Or is it a mundane experience? Well, need to go put in some FaceTime with everybody else, show up and let them know I haven't dropped off the face of the earth. Or do you really look forward to it? Do you look forward to waking up and doing Bible study in the morning? Or is it, oh, I need to get a couple minutes and need to read a verse or two before I get in the car and head somewhere or go to school. Do you relish receiving a new co-worker letter, magazine, Living Church News, or booklet? Or is it, oh man, I'm not through the other one yet. They keep sending these things. They're too closely spaced together. I need more time. It's been a month. Do you look forward to the opportunity to fast? And no, I'm not saying, do you look forward to that gnawing feeling in your stomach and the headache? I get a headache almost every time I fast, a splitting headache by the end of the day. And I know a lot about health, and there's a lot of things I've done to try and prevent it, but guess what? I think that's part of my body chemistry, and it just happens. I don't like it. But fasting is a wonderful thing. 
I like how I'm different when I'm done. I feel different. I know I'm connected to the Father in a different way. And I'm humbled along the way, which is a good thing as well. Do you enjoy spiritual conversations with the brethren? If you answered no to any or all of the above questions, you may just be going through the motions. You could be falling out of love with the truth, or you may not be near being in love with the truth. And again, I, I question, what is the risk if we're not in love with the truth? We read Second Thessalonians 2. We could believe a lie. And where is that going to wind us up? But brethren, we can all change, can't we? We can do things in our life to make sure we are loving the truth and loving it more and more. The reality is all of us need to fall in love with the truth. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Revelation 2. If I just stepped over the line, we need to fall in love with the truth and be in love with the truth. I think you're going to see this is actually God's analogy. This is what God wants us to do. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, God takes us through and he walks us through seven lessons to seven churches, seven messages to, again, seven churches, the ecclesia, the elect, the called out ones that he has sanctified and set apart from the rest of the world that he's chosen to give in his truth to. In Revelation 2, verse 1, the angel is talking to the church at Ephesus, the called-out ones there. And he says, these things, he says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. This is very much like a spokesman club or a graduate club evaluation of a speech. How do you do it? You start out encouraging and building up. And then you let them know where they need to change and improve, which is the harder stuff to take. And then you end on a positive note. And that's what he's doing with this church that he's getting ready to chastise. He says, guess what, gang? You're doing a few things right. And one of them is your patience. And you can't bear those who are evil. You don't want to be around evil people a whole lot because you know that evil cor people will corrupt. It'll rub off. You hang around long enough and you'll become that way. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. You've done like the Bereans. You've tested the scriptures. Okay, they said this. Is that really what's in the book? And that's a good thing he's saying to this group. Verse 3, And you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You haven't let go yet. Yet he has a condemnation for this church, for this attitude. And what does he say? Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you that you've left your first love. You've left it. Now, is he talking about you've left your husband or you've left your wife? Your first love? No. That's not what he's talking about, is it? He's using a physical, romantic analogy to talk about the truth. God's analogy. And he's using it to talk about the truth. Let's, let's explore this a little bit more. I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Remember, 
Look back to where you've been when you were in love with the truth. Using that romantic analogy, what was it like? And then what's the admonition or the, uh, the encouragement he gives them? He says, repent. What does the word repent mean? It means to turn and go in the other direction, doesn't it? To stop going in this direction, to turn around and go in the other direction. Why? Why repent? Because you're headed off in the wrong direction. You were on course, and now you're off course. And because you're off course, you've fallen out of love with the truth. And so what does he say here? Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repent, turn, and do what? Do the first works. Let's play with that a little bit. What does that look like? when somebody is falling in love with the truth. Isn't it exciting to be around someone who's falling in love with the truth, who's coming into the truth for the first time and God is taking the blinders off and they walk through the back door and you stick out your hand to to shake their hand and they just, they give you a hug. They've been waiting to see God's people all week long and they come in and they can't stop talking about the truth and what they're learning and what they're coming to understand and about the article that they just read and about the four sermons they've listened to on Saturday morning before they got to church and how they can't wait to get back. You know what I'm talking about. It's exciting, that first love for the truth. Do you feel that way, brethren, about the truth? Or was that back when, for those of you who are older and have been around for a while, is that back when you were younger you felt that way? How does God want us to feel about the truth? How does somebody fall in love with the truth? Is it love at first sight? Boom! Wow! Christmas is terrible! Yay! No! It's not. And in fact, that rocks people's worlds, some to the core. In part because, wait a second, this has been part of my life for a long time. But also in part because they think about the ramifications and the implications of what if I don't do this anymore? What is my family going to think of me? How am I going to be treated? All these things start running through the mind. How does one fall in love with the truth? It's a process, isn't it? But it begins with the mind being open, and then all of a sudden, somebody begins, those who are falling in love with the truth, to work with the truth. To pray, God, I'm not sure I like what I'm seeing, but show me, because I know it's your will. Open my mind, help me to really understand this. They begin studying more and more, and they can't put the Bible down, and sometimes they're late for work because they study too long. They're waiting at the mailbox, and they know when the mailman's late bringing the next magazine or the next booklet. They can't get enough. They're listening, like I said, to two or three sermons on the Sabbath before they come to church. And then they'll go home and listen to another one as a nightcap. How do you fall in love with the truth? You spend time with the truth. You spend time praying, studying, reading, meditating, fasting. And it happens. You know what's really amazing, though? As we think about 
the analogy God has used here. This is not my analogy, falling in love with the truth. This is God's analogy. You've left your first love. That love affair, that deep affection, you've left it. Now, what do you need to do? Repent. Turn and do the first works. Do over again. Live the life over again. Do the works. Do the things that you were doing that helped you fall in love with the truth in the first place. Spend time with it. Interact with it. Spend time with your Father in Heaven and your big brother, Jesus Christ. Get to know them all over again. Develop that relationship. What's amazing, though, is that God has used a physical analogy here. A physical analogy that relates to marriage, doesn't it? What are the principles? How does it work? I've read a lot in marriage counseling, read a lot of marriage research. I've worked with people over the years, a number of people who've had problems in marriage. You know what the research shows? <clears throat> Let me, I'll get there in a minute. How many times have you heard someone say to you who's having marriage problems, I'm not in love with her anymore. I've fallen out of love with him. It's just not going to work anymore. You ever heard that? You ever said that? You know what the research says? The research, proven, tried, tested stuff. It says that if you feel that way, you can actually change the way you feel. You know how to do it? You begin treating that other person the way you used to treat them when you were in love with them, whether or not you feel like it. And sooner or later, the feelings will come. Study after study after study demonstrates this is a fact. Brethren, what happens when you first fall in love with someone? Think about it. How does it work? Is it love at first sight? No. It's attraction, maybe. Or maybe not. It's not love, not true love. Not deep love. It's attraction. And then what happens? Do you see each other once a year or once every three years and say, Oh, I love you. <laughs> and by seeing them for five or ten minutes once every three years, your relationship just grows and grows and pretty soon you're married? No. How does it work? I can't get enough. When we got married, we saved money because the phone bill went down. We were in two different states at that time, a long way apart. And the gas bill went down because I was driving. Every, wound up every weekend by the end of it, killing myself because I couldn't stay away. And you talk all the time about all kinds of things. You spend time together. You interact. You just stare at each other because you're in their presence. One of the interesting things that women will do sometimes, it's more the women than the men when you look at the research, and she'll do things with him she hates just to be with him. And maybe there'll be something positive that comes out of it. He's a gun fan. And so they go skeet shooting. She can't stand it. But just maybe he'll put his arm around her and show her how to shoot the gun. <clears throat> but it's any excuse to be together, isn't it? That's how love begins to grow. It's the same thing with the truth. 
taking opportunity, spending time. You don't fall deeply in love with someone like that. It takes time and it takes effort and it takes spending time with each other. How do you re-fall in love when you've fallen out of love? Guess what? God's principle works. Repent! Because you're going in the wrong direction. How come marriages come apart after 5, 10, 20, 30 years or more? Because instead of doing the first works, the things that helped you fall in love, you begin diverging and going in different directions. And then you're not comfortable with each other. So he stays at the office more and she gets a part-time job so she's not in the house when he gets home. Which drives a deeper wedge in. Satan is in the background saying, yes, divide and conquer. Yet God says you can fix it. How? Repent. Turn. Go back and do the first works all over again. And in time, the feelings will return. Same thing with the truth. If you've fallen out of love with the truth, repent! (laughs) No, repent. Turn. Go back and do the first works again. Spend time. Get to know God again. Learn about Him again. God says repent and you do the first works which is interesting. God doesn't say, I'm going to do the works for you. We have a responsibility before Him for our love of the truth to return or even remain, brethren. The effort has to be put forth on our part. And God will then respond in kind. That's the interesting thing, too. In a a damaged marriage relationship, when one person starts to put the time in, and, and demonstrate caring, guess what happens? Even if the other person's ice cold, given a little bit of time, they begin to react. It's like clockwork. You can predict it. But it takes effort. It takes effort. Just like in marriage, if the flame of our love for the truth has grown cold or is growing cold, God will respond as we put forth the effort. In both cases, though, whether it's in a marriage or in the spiritual situation, the ball is in our court. It's up to us to do. God is not going to grow character for us. We have to do it. We have to put forth the effort. We have to show Him where our heart is. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. Christ makes the observation here, beginning to quote from Isaiah. Matthew 8, or 15, verse 8, he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. They speak a good thing, and in vain they worship me. How? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Not what Christ taught. Ten commandments are Christ's commandments. He's the one that gave them on Sinai. Those are commandments of God. Other individuals teach us doctrines the commandments of men. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. You should do this. You should do that. But they're not God's commandments. James chapter 4. 
James. Chapter 4. It's interesting, earlier in the book of James, in James 2, James is talking about faith without works, isn't he? You say you've got faith, and you show me your faith by your words. I'll show you my faith without telling you I have faith. I'll show you it by my works. You can watch me, and you can tell I have faith. Faith without works is dead. You can't have true faith if you don't have the works that demonstrate that faith. We can't be true Christians if we don't have the works that demonstrate our Christianity. We can talk till we're blue in the face, until someone else is blue in the face, and their ears hurt because they're listening to us so long. But it's just lip service, isn't it? We've got to have the works of Christianity. James chapter 4 and verse 7, Therefore submit to God. That's a bad word. Submit. What does that mean? Give Him your will? And say, guess what, God? I want your will in my life, not mine. Submit to him. God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm actually going to, I want to follow you, even if it's uncomfortable. That's one of the things to me when I work with someone for baptism. And they say, you know what? I'm having some really big problems in my life right now. I don't really, I care about what happens in my life. But it doesn't really matter because what's most important is I follow God no matter what happens in my life. It's one of those things that gives you a clue as a minister. Wow, I think this person is about ready for baptism. They're really ready to submit, surrendering themselves to God. And that's what this is all about. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Notice it doesn't say, God will draw near to you, and then you can draw near to him. The ball's in our court. It's up to us to move toward him first. <clears throat> in a marriage relationship, when things get difficult sometimes, Satan motivates us to think on all of the things that are going wrong. And maybe there's all kinds of positives, but there's one thing that just really is eating at us. Spiritually, we might call it the loose brick. I was talking to the kids about this the other day, you know, it might be a, a beautiful stone wall, very ornately and articulately, articulately made, but there's a brick in the middle that doesn't have mortar around it. And instead of being able to see the beauty for what it is, the eye hones in on the loose brick, doesn't it? I've worked with people who've been painters or wallpaperers. And it's amazing, their eye, because it'll catch the loose brick. i worked with a mason for a little while. Uh, or it'll catch the seam in the wallpaper. I can't see that. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking at the overall thing. But Satan wants us to focus in on the loose brick, spiritually or in a marriage relationship. Why? You have questions that come up. This is not a marriage anymore. Why do we keep pretending? <clears throat> Maybe she's working too much. Maybe he's not talking to me anymore. Very common reasons. So I'm not picking on anybody in particular. Reasons I've heard over and over again, as many of you have as well. This marriage is not fixable. We have nothing in common anymore. Yet, if you make a list, you realize we've got 
900 things in common. We've been married for 17 years. But there's a couple things that are really getting to us. So what does Satan have us do? Focus in on the irritating issues and forget all of the positive things. Yet what does God tell us to do? And obviously these principles applied both to marriages and spiritually, to our marriage spiritually, to Christ, to our relationship with God. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. What is the principle here? What do we focus on when times are difficult? Satan wants us to focus on the problem, the thing that's agitating us. Yet what does God say to focus on? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, another one of those memory scriptures. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are of good report, or excuse me, are lovely, whatever things are of a good report. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Focusing on the positive. Accentuating the positive, as the saying goes. Eliminating the negative. Yeah, the negative's there. But we can focus on the negative and it can make us miserable. Or we can focus on the positive and pray about the negative. And life is going to be much, much better. I've worked with people before who've had problems. And when they can get themselves to focusing on the positive, no, the negative doesn't always go away. At least not immediately. But it changes the outlook of life. And life automatically gets better. The spiritual principle applies as well. Psalm chapter 143. Words of wise King David here. I believe these are King David's. Let me check it. Psalm 143. Yes. Psalm of David. And verse 5. Notice what David's doing here. And brethren, you know the life of David. Was, life, was David's life a cush life? Everything handed to him on a silver platter? Everything always went just peachy? No, it didn't. He was the youngest of the brothers. Those of you who are younger brothers, how do you think he was treated by his older brothers? He had six He was the one that got sent out to the pasture, out to take care of the sheep. Got attacked by a lion and a bear, at least, in that experience. He showed up to bring his brother's food at a a battle and opened his mouth and ended up having to fight a giant. Because of that, he was awarded with the, the the king's daughter, which is really nice, but the king didn't like him. In fact, he tried to kill him in his own bed in his daughter's house one night. David spent years on the run hiding from the king. Then finally, when the kingdom became his own, his own family started going berserk. He was thrown out of his throne by his own son. David had a lot of issues in his life. He had a lot of things, negative things he could have dwelt on, didn't he? But what did he choose to do? Psalm chapter 143, verse 5. David says, I remember the days of old. God, how could you have let all those things happen to me? You're so unfair. It's not what he said, is it? 
Remember the days of old, I meditate on all your works. I muse on the works of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. David was focusing on God and the truth and what made him excited. He said elsewhere, you know, to the hills, I lift my eyes. To the mountains that are around me, I look. Why? Because it's from there that my help comes. It reminds me of you, Father. David focused on these positive things. And he had, the world would say, every right to focus on the negative. Boy, he had a pile of negative things in his life. But he focused on those positive things, on the blessings from God. And he rejoiced to the end of his days in the truth that he was given to know and to understand. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 15. Ephesians 5, 15. See then that you walk circumspectly. Circumspectly means to walk carefully, to walk thoughtfully, being aware of what's around you, considering literally what's next to you and behind you and beside you, but meditating, pondering on your life. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming that time. Using that time to your benefit. Not wasting that time. Not taking for granted the time that you've been given. Brethren, I think you know and you understand whatever you deem truly important, you dedicate time to, don't you? Whatever we think is important, we're going to give time. If my job's important, I'm going to give my job time. If... Going out with the guys for a drink on Friday night's important. Nothing's going to get in the way of that. If going out with the girls is important, I won't go to work if I have to because that's important. I'm going to do it. Spending time with my family is important. I'm going to make every effort to do that. I worked in the field of uh, health and exercise science for a while, and I had colleagues who would not schedule a meeting even with the president of the university if it was during their time to go jogging during the day. They wouldn't put anything in the place of what was important to them. What we deem important, we spend time with. Brethren, how important is the truth? If Jesus Christ came down today and looked at our life, and he had a pad of paper and a pencil, and he added up the time that we spend with the truth every day and every week, would he be able to tell from the time we spend that the truth is important to us? Something to ponder over. And again, as I point the finger, I've got three pointing back at me. I'm going to be honest with myself on this too. All of us need to grow even more. All of us need to love the truth even more. How much time do you put into your relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ? What are you willing to change in the way you currently live so that you can recapture the love of the truth even more? Those who are newer to the truth, young people too, what are you willing to change in your life so that you can develop a love for the truth even more? We can all stand to grow. And brethren, the more we spend time with the truth, the more we will fall in love with it. My wife 
was given some advice by the father of one of her best friends in college. He was warning my wife and this other young woman, be careful who you spend time with as you're choosing future mates. He said, because if you hang around a rock long enough, you'll fall in love with it. <clears throat> Blunt, to the point, but what's the point? You spend enough time around somebody, you're going to overlook their faults if they have faults that aren't going to work with you and your personality and your needs, and you're going to fall in love with them. Don't let yourself do that, was his advice. But it's an interesting concept when you look at love from that perspective. You hang around a, lock, a rock long enough, you fall in love with it. If you spend enough time with the truth, guess what? You'll fall in love with it or fall in love with it again. Really neat principle that works really well. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, and as you turn there, I want to share with you, <clears throat> over the years, my wife and I have both spent time uh, quizzing individuals who we believe are successful parents based on a number of criteria, one of which is their kids, for the most part, wind up hanging on to the truth. Many kids grow up in the truth and disappear. They depart from it. Um, one of the Actually, the, the probably the resounding feedback we've gotten from individuals who, for the most part, have their kids stick around the truth. We ask, I've asked parents, and I've also asked the kids the same questions, who are mostly adults now. Why did you hang on to the truth? Why did your kids, why do you think your kids stuck with the truth? The comment from the parents has been, we tried to live it every day of our life. It wasn't just something we did on Saturday or whenever we had a, pulled the Bible out for a weekly Bible study. It was a way of life. Dr. Jeff Fall in the child-rearing booklet talks about creating a, um, oh, basically a Christian atmosphere in your home, an atmosphere of faith in your home, where every aspect of your life reflects God and His truth and His way of life. It's not just going through the motions on the Sabbath, but it's every time something comes up... It, most every conversation, it reverts back to the truth and back to God. And I've heard that from adults and kids. Why are you still here? Well, my parents didn't just tell us. They lived it. And for us as individuals, parents who are raising children, we've got to ask ourselves, do I live it or do I just preach it? I've got to be careful with that. I'm up here preaching. And if I'm not living it, my kids will see me as a hypocrite like that. Do they see us praying from time to time? Do they see us doing Bible study? Do they hear us talking about the truth all the time? Adults who may have kids that are gone or don't have kids, when they're, when they're around you at church, do they hear you talking about the truth or the transmission? What are you talking about? Do the young people see us living the truth? Do our kids see that? Do they see us, brethren? Parents, do your kids see you in love with the truth? Think about that. They need to. Why will they be in love with the truth growing up and when they become an adult? Because they've seen a love affair with the truth of God. And it's left a lasting impression on them. 
Revelation chapter 3. Now to the church at Laodicea. Laodiceans, oh, they're all going to burn the lake of fire, aren't they? No. No. Notice Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, the called out ones, the elect, the ones that God has chosen to give his truth to. He's working with them. He loves them. He cares about them. These things says the Amen, the faithful true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, that is Christ. Verse 15, I know your works, that you're neither cold or hot. You're going through the motions. You're not excited about the truth, and you don't hate it either. You're somewhere in the middle. I could wish that you were cold or hot. That's an amazing thing. This is the words of Christ, and he's saying, I wish you were on fire, or I wish you hated the truth. It's essentially what's being said here. I wish you were hot, you had a fire in your belly for the truth, or you couldn't stand it. I wish you were one or the other, but not in the middle. I wish you were cold or hot so that because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, spew you out of my mouth, I believe the King James says. Verse 17, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You've got everything you need. You're living a, a great life. Maybe you're not a millionaire or a billionaire, but you're comfortable. You've got what you need. You've got a roof over your head. You've got food in the refrigerator. You've got what you want. You've got your ambitions. God says, but you don't realize spiritually you're missing. You're missing. What does he do with the Laodiceans? Well, gang, you know, you had your shot. Put your hand to the plow. Looks like you pulled it back. You're going to smolder. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, verse 18, I counsel you. I give you advice. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. Not the cheap stuff. The real stuff. 23 point whatever carrots. Bright yellow. That you may be rich. White garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness, spiritual nakedness, may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. See what? See the truth again. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn around. Go back and do the first works. The things that made you fall in love with the truth in the first place. Laodiceans aren't lost. They're liable to have a really rocky road for a while. I want to show you, show you two. I'll mention one and I'll turn to another one with you. <laughs> two of my favorite scriptures as of late. Somebody who leaves the truth, are they lost? Somebody who goes away and stops keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, are they lost? Are they going to burn in the lake of fire? Who makes that call? God does. God knows the heart. But if God has called someone, brethren, if he's given them a calling and he's opened their mind, God is not done with them. Don't turn there. You can write it down and look it up on your own. Romans 11.29. Romans 11.29. Paul said that God's calling is irrevocable. It's irrevocable. Once God gives a calling, He will not take it back. 
That's not fair when he, if he would do that. He's a fair God. Once he gives a calling, it's irrevocable. He will not revoke that calling. Remember that. Older individuals in here, if you have kids that grew up in the truth and they've left, God's calling is irrevocable. He's not done with them. Have you written them off? If your child, teenager, came up to you and said, Mom and Dad, I hate you, and some have to some of you, what do you tell them? Well, I hate you too. I never want to see you again. Or do you say, you know what? You might do that, but I'm going to love you no matter what. Brethren, where do you get that character from? That's from Him. God doesn't close the book on somebody because they get them angry, because they walk off in a huff. Let me turn with me to another one, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians. Chapter 1. In verse, I'm going to break in. Philippians 1 6. This is the other scripture. Philippians 1 6. Being confident of this very thing, and who's Paul writing to? The church at Philippi. The called out ones, the elect. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How long can God wait? Until the day of Christ. If He's begun a good work in us, or in our family members, or in our friends, or in anyone else, guess what? He's going to wait. And yeah, He might have a rope on us, and we start heading off in our own direction, and every once in a while, God gives it a tug or a yank. And it makes us straighten up, and I'm not ready to go God's way yet. Put our head down and go away from Him. Sooner or later, we're going to hit the wall. Sooner or later without God, and sooner or later with our conscience grinding on us, you know what the truth is. You know the Sabbath is the truth of God. You know He wants you at the Feast of Tabernacles. You know you're supposed to live by the law of God. Sooner or later, God's hope is that we will turn Because he who has begun a good work in you will finish it until the day of Christ. He's not done yet. And we have walking proof of that in this room. We have walking proof of that in the congregations around the world. People who've started on the path to the truth, but guess what? Five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. I heard recently 40 years ago. Somebody turned their back on the truth and went their way. But they've returned. Doing what? The first works. It's possible. Our God is not done with us, brethren. But let me ask you, and let me talk with you now in conclusion. God warns that if we do not love the truth, He could send us strong delusion and we could believe a lie. Brethren, are we at risk of this happening to us? Ask yourself, am I at risk of this happening to me? Could I fall into this risk category? 2 Corinthians 13.5, don't turn there, tells us that we need to examine ourselves 
as to whether we're in the faith. We need to examine ourselves, young and old. Do I love the truth? If not, why? If I'm not in love with the truth anymore, what happened? What can I do differently? Brethren, use the Feast of Tabernacles to help rejuvenate you in the truth. Deepen your love affair with the truth at the feast this year. Let it get you excited. Cry out to God to help you do that. To let excitement about His awesome plan ooze out of you. To let it be infectious. To let you catch the infectious nature that you're going to be with. Those who come back after the feast. Review your notes. Talk about, think back on what you went through at the feast. And please do this. When you come back, don't just throw the notebook away and file it. Go over it. Let the truth become real to you, deeper in terms of being real. What actions, brethren, do you have to take in your life to change so you can be in love with the truth? What will you change to enable you to develop that deeper love? You and I, brethren, are entirely responsible for whether we stay in love with the truth or whether we fall out of the truth, out of love with the truth. Just like... In most cases, we're entirely responsible for how much love is in our marriage. The ball is in our court. We need to work the works of him who has sent us. We need to work the works that take being in love with and staying in love with the truth. Brethren, improve your Bible study. Improve your prayer life. Improve the way you meditate. Let it be deeper. Improve the frequency and the meaning with which you fast. Where, are, where you are lacking spiritually, brethren, repent, turn, and fix the situation. Brethren, God wants us in His kingdom. He wants us to overcome. He's giving us every opportunity. The end is coming. It's going to get difficult. And Satan is diabolical and deceptive, and he will try and pull us away. But brethren, there's a way that we can keep from being deceived. If we love the truth, if it's part of us, if it's internalized, nobody can take it away because it's us. Brethren, let yourself fall in love with the truth. And if you have fallen out of it, fall in love with it once again. As you do that, you will hear the command, the cry when Christ returns, the compliment, well done, good and faithful servant, come up here. 